Now it's my very great pleasure to introduce tonight's moderator, Ms. Rahawa Haila. Rahawa Haila is a writer whose work has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic, The New Yorker, and Outside Magazine. She is currently at work at a, on a memoir about thru-hiking the Appalachian Trail, forthcoming from Harper. Please give a very warm welcome to Ms. Rahawa Haila. Hello, hello. Thank you all so much for coming out tonight. Um, and thank you to Zocalo for having us all here. Uh, we're very excited for the event. I will now introduce these panelists. First up, Jose Gonzalez. I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> Please. If you knew what I knew about Jose, that would be much louder. <laughs> He's the founder of Latino Outdoors, a network of leaders committed to engaging Latinos in the outdoors. His works uh, include collaborations with the White House Council on Environmental Quality, the U.S. Department of Interior, and the National Park Service. Pretty cool. It's all right. <laughs> <laughs> Beside him, we have Miriam Solis Coronel. She leads RAI's Next Gen Marketing Program, which aims to inspire, attract, and engage multicultural millennials in the outdoors. She also serves as chair of the California State Park and Recreation Commission, Thank you. And then we have Myron Floyd, uh, an environmental sociologist and head of the Department of Recreation and Tourism Management at North Carolina State University. His research focuses on race, ethnicity, and outdoor recreation. He also serves on the board of directors for the Rails to Trails Conservancy. Thank you for coming, Myron. All right, so um, for the reason that <laughs> you're here, uh, is nature for white people? I'm gonna start off by saying a resounding no. We are all on occupied indigenous lands. And so, <laughs> hell no. And also, based on the faces that I see here, uh, that's a, a ridiculous suggestion. Um, we didn't choose the name of this event, and I would like to ask the panelists what question they hear when they hear is nature for white people, because it's really the synthesis of several questions lumped up together that kind of flattens a more general and very important line of inquiry as to who we are and how we see our natural spaces. So, Jose, if you'd like, yeah. Thank you. <clears throat> flip a table. <laughs> flip the table, we don't have a table to flip. Uh, one of the, you know, we were talking earlier, and um, actually gonna, was going to go off when we were having our conversation. What do I hear is a, uh, at minimum, a starting of kind of maybe a false setup of what's normal, what's normative, right? What are you comparing in terms of who has it, who hasn't, in terms of a, um, an additive component? Like when you say, is it, it's a yes or a no, versus how is it for so and so? which I think it's a richer conversation to say. For me, what I'll say is like the conversation that shifted, especially around Latinx communities, was not do Latinx families, people, communities care about nature or going into the outdoors, but how? And then that allows us to see what has been missing and what allows that community to contribute to the space. So I'll start with that. Excellent. No, please. I'm sure you have much more to say, Marianne. <laughs> Buenas noches. Thanks so much for having us. Um, such a pleasure to be here. The, the, the question that comes to mind, it, it really does feed off Jose's comment of the how. Um, we have always recreated and played in these public spaces, and there's history that goes back to us as people in these public places. So it is about the how. How have we been enjoying it? Who are we and being enjoying this incredible public spaces with? And how do we continue to elevate these narratives so that they don't become as hidden stories, but really part of us, of us humans enjoying these places here in this beautiful country? Thank you. Please. Well, I'd like to say thanks for having me here as well, and uh, it's a pleasure to be here. I'd like to add that in one way we could answer yes to that question. Okay. In the sense that, if, in terms of how we define nature and how nature has been defined historically, if we believe that or we um, can 
entertain the thought that nature is a social construction. It's constructed by those who have some control and some power over it and who can control who has access to that, then certain groups can control it and it can be for that one group. And I think that's, well, I know, based on what you said in the, in the outset, um, that has been the case. And so nature has been solely the territory, if you will, of, of, of white um, America. Uh, but we know, as what you've just said, that, um, that we have more diverse users of our public spaces who are defining it in their own terms. And so nature is for anyone who can access it, and even for those who don't necessarily can access it physically, but in other ways. So I agree, it's a no. <laughs> but also yes, but policy says yes. But yes, in some ways it has been a yes. And okay, so where, why do we keep coming back to this question? What other questions um, do you think we should be asking um, as a way of decentralizing and um, uh, making whiteness, whiteness less normative than it currently is? Um, because clearly there, and there are so many people of color and women and LGBTQIA folks out in the wilderness. Um, what is it that makes us keep overlooking them or saying that the number that are out there isn't enough? I can say it from our perspective and, and something that I've noticed most recently is, one, who's the storyteller and what is the storyteller speaking about? So it's the stories and the representation of the narratives that are being reflected, whether it might be on social media, it might be on books, it might be on magazines, but really elevating these stories so that they don't become as like, oh my gosh, look at this person, but it really just becomes part of our regular narrative because we have been here. Something that we've done at REI is we've really transformed our content team to really start telling a story about a life outdoors, it's a life well lived, and how do people interpret that? It might be from a perspective of a person in the South, or it might be somebody here in California, and that narrative really is, is breaking the stereotypes or really that traditional story that we've been seeing about who's playing outside. Please. So adding to that is, uh, I was told this is, what was the phrase? This is a smart, curious crowd. So <laughs> it's a room full of smart, curious people. So I'll throw that out there to just say, you know, first of all, systems of oppression exist. Uh, whether you are aware of them or choose to be aware of them in specific ways, that's different. But I say that as a way to, uh, to try to mention two to three quick things. One is related to what Miriam is saying about who is the storyteller and what is the story narrative, if that's important, right? Because what are the platforms that get to decide uh, who has that visibility and access? So that work has to start in places, for example, like REI. If REI doesn't do it, then the question is like who, right? Second is that, um, that it's the sheer reality of the demographic shift, right? 2040, 2042 and on, uh, this, the, this United States are going to look very different than they did 50 years ago. So we can't have the same type of conservation success that we had with the same demographic block before. So that reality of knowing that that need, that power access, um, who gets to have those says and, and the decision making on it, that's why it's imperative, right? So it's like we need to be facing the reality of that. Uh, because in the past, you could more easily ignore it, right? You could say, well, maybe we don't need to pay as much attention because we can still rely on X, Y, and C to move forward, so to speak. And then the last one is this question of this reimagining and redefining, right? I was saying because the infrastructure that uh, we've had in the past, the physical infrastructure, for example, of the Park Service, the cultural infrastructure of the Park Service, even the research infrastructure of the Park Service, like what gets to be defined as the outdoors, that was set. And that's gonna to continue to shift. So because parks need to be maintained, right? Constituencies need to be built. Uh, decisions still need to be made around conservation. And so that requires the reality that I mentioned about the demographic shift. So it's almost like you can try to avoid this as much as you can, but there still get to be these points until you, you, you can't ignore it as much. Right, and how can we, and right now, a lot of um, the responsibility is on the individual, um, uh, on, the, on the minority, to show up 
and that somehow if enough of that happens, everything will be fixed. What's missing from, from that narrative and from that frame of reference? Obviously a lot, but it's my job to ask you questions, so here we are. <laughs> Myron, what do, what do you think? Well, uh, in the public sector, when we talk about uh, park and protected area management in the United States uh, and the agencies that do that, the National Park Service, the U.S. Forest Service, the BLM, uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, um, you know, historically, it's been about you know how can we reach out to certain communities and encourage them to visit or individuals from diverse groups to visit, and it's been framed as a question of what's wrong with either those communities or those individuals that they don't visit national parks or refuges or whatever. But it's more important, and it's and as uh, following up on Jose's point about demographic change and how that sh will reshape and redefine our um, uh, parks and other protected areas is that the institutions themselves need to uh, ask that question of themselves is what's, you know, what's wrong with them? What's about their institution, their organization that should be corrected to better serve the diverse, um, you know, this, this multicultural, increasingly multicultural, multiracial uh, um, country. Without that, Without knowing how to do that, then there will be this continua continuation of this gap between those agencies and the people they are mandated to serve. Um, and I hesitate to, to speculate on what that will look like into the future. Speculate. I mean, Spe speculate. <laughs> well, we are faced with a number of environmental uh, challenges um, from, you know, the one that we hear a lot about is climate change. We know about, um, of various types of endangered species. Who's gonna be there to support the protection and, the, um, the, and support the type of policies that will protect our environment and our well-being? So I think there are, just, there are consequences if we don't do this. This is not really a, um, this is an essential question. This is an essential issue that if we don't deal with it, it will um, not be good for our country and not be good for our environment. I'd like to add to that, um, a couple of years ago, and I think Jose, you were part of this um, coalition um, for California, Parks Forward, and that coalition was, was put together to think about how is California State Parks operating, and how do we become more relevant to Californians, to visitors, not just from a guest perspective, but also as an employer. How do we attract rangers and headquarter teams that reflect California? And as you could imagine, tackling this in, in any organization, especially in a government level, is very complicated. But one of the things that we've learned is that they've done um, major infrastructure changes to really just, at the very basic, make applications more accessible to people or make them even easier. I recently learned that to be a ranger, it like if you decided to be a ranger, you applied, and you might not hear until like a year from now whether you got or even considered for the position or not. I don't know, but like a year is a long, by that time I've forgotten I've even applied for that job and I've moved on probably even to another state. So that's, we're losing a ton of candidates and candidates that are really interested in these positions that have a love and passion for parks um, and might be reflective of, the, of us Californians here. So that was an issue that was, it, it took, as, uh, there's union um, conversations that need to happen, there's HR conversations. So um, just recently we had a commission meeting and our director was giving us updates in that it, it, it's gone easier. Um, I don't know if it's gone like super quick where you can apply and get a job maybe in those next six months, but at least it's a, not a year to a year and a half. So that is one change that is happening at the state level, but this is something that organizations are dealing with similar conversations and similar infrastructure changes happening within to create that change. What has happened and what I've seen has worked for many of them is that both the bottom up and top down approach has worked to create change because it is the community, your, your employees who are feeding the energy of them wanting to be relevant in the communities, whether it is at REI, we want to be relevant to our customers in our community, or it is with organizations that are serving um, families locally, they want to be relevant. They're the ones out in the field being the face of the organization, but really it is from the CEO to the leadership team to 
to open that door and say, yes, we are willing to create change. It's not going to be easy, but we're willing to try it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I, one of the things, so I've long been an REI co-op member. Love REI. Thank you. I, I, I would, I got most of my gear from my Appalachian Trail hike at REI. I am not sponsored by REI, but, but I do love REI. Um, and as a member, I can see, especially with the advertising, the changes that have been made, the attempts at representation. And one of the things I find myself having to explain is that that representation is, is twofold. One, yes, it encourages um, uh, minority hikers to, or, or outdoors people to go out and, and, and do the things that they see someone who looks like them doing. But it also signals to many um, uh, white customers that this is a thing that people of color do, right? Um, that differently abled people do. Uh, what, how do you, I mean, this, is, this must be such a big challenge for you, figuring out how to convey that um, in ways that aren't just, yeah, we have some you know, black women doing yoga or like, you know, uh, just you know, going for a jog. Um, how, do you, how, how do you lay that out? Like, how, what questions do you have to ask yourself um, to, to figure out how to address this? Well, and it's about having a balance, right? Is one being relevant um, and being truly reflective of your members. And right now, um, our members are continue to change. They're being more and more diverse, and they're being also very active and very vocal. Um, doing talent, um, when we do marketing campaigns, um, REI does not hire models. So all of our talent that you see are online or in our campaigns, these are real people. So when it comes to casting, one of the things that we do is we go out to our network of partners. We have networks at the national level who have local chapters across the country, and there they have leaders, they have um, just a community of people that they're um, offering experiences to, and we let them know, hey, we have a casting opportunity in LA, and the shoot is gonna be X dates. Um, we're looking for people. Do you know anybody? Can you help us spread the word? As you can imagine, that comes with its challenges, right? Because it's not like a model, like, hey, we need a person this height, this size to do this. If we're, hire, if we're hire, really hiring real people, that means that we're dealing with real bodies, real schedules, and feel just the complexities of it is that it is to be a real person, right? So it's really hard to really get talent because um, we have to fit all those pieces in, it's what that requires us to do is just to be more patient and way more intentional about taking the time to do that because of those filters. Um, and what we do in our talent is make sure that we have a balance too, like we, we also listen to our core audience while also being reflective of a multicultural audience. And people, I've received emails that people have said, I received the REI catalog and I can truly see myself. And that's really touching because on the back end, like I know what it took to make that happen. So it's for somebody to recognize it, it's truly meaningful. Um, there have been there have been um, some stands and some actions that Aria has taken um, has taken to social media and say we share a value um, on X issue, and people sometimes get offended by that or feel like Aria should not. Take I feel a like stand. that's putting it mildly. <laughs> <laughs> I, feel like, I feel like people get more. Than yeah, people could get really upset, yeah. but you know what? <laughs> um, on the other hand, there's people that say, thank you so much for standing up for, for this value. It is a reflection that you are a co-op, that you're a part of the community, and you're listening to me. Right, and part of this question of is nature for white people is also is nature a political space? Because if it's for people of color, if it's for everyone, then of course it's a political space. How, um, I think, one of the questions that we, we find ourselves asking is why, or what do people of color necessarily, what relationship do they want to the outdoors? As though it's monolithic, right? Like as though so there's just one relationship. What are some of those answers, Myron, that you've found in your research? It varies. And um, in some ways, the experiences that people desire are common. I mean, it's, the outdoors is something that attracts a wide cross-section of people, cultures, backgrounds. At the same time, as you suggest, um, 
There are types of experiences, like political activism, is something that is more salient among people of color. Uh, and also, people who are disenfranchised um, can use that space to mobilize and to express themselves in the outdoors or in public, in public green spaces. There's also this idea that people find um, this freedom, this freedom of expression, individual expression, but also cultural and social expression that they can be with others who have similar backgrounds, particularly at, at times when they are, um, I'll just say under duress um, and, and need to find spaces where they can feel safe. Um, and unfortunately, we live in a climate at this, at this time when people do have to take precautions when they are, um, are taking or engaging in outdoor recreation or engaging in, in, um, in recreation in remote places. Um, I would also add that, um, you know, these are places that can um, allow people to kind of learn more about themselves and learn more about how they connect to this country and, and to this society by visiting places like certain national parks where they can learn about their heritage and their, um, and their history. Um, as unique to them, um, African American themed sites, Latino uh, themed sites, Japanese American themed sites uh, within the National Park Service. So these represent examples where people can can seek out their own experiences, seek out their cultural history at at the same time of enjoying the outdoors, which is more of a common, which is a common um, experience. Uh, yeah. So, well, I'd add to that is so a couple of layers to it is one is, you know, we often, you'll hear kind of say nature, you know, welcomes you in all its beauty and, and, and um, duress. In other words, it doesn't care whether you enjoy it or suffer, right? Like you're gonna go out there and the trees don't care what skin color you are, the mountain is still gonna treat you the same, right? <laughs> but it's talking about the social construct of it, right? It's when we add the human layers of interaction because then, you might remember having a bad experience in nature because you didn't prepare for it and it was really hot and it was really sunny versus you had a bad experience because you were out there and people said something to you. They looked at you a certain way. You know, there was a certain inner behavioral or, or interaction with someone that reminded you uh, of why you don't want it, of a fear or also a connection to a real oppressed reality back home, right? You don't want an interaction with a park ranger to be um, conflated with an interaction to law enforcement back, right? Because then that kind of undermines the experience we're trying to promote about what nature provides. And then the other piece is when we look at, you know, the questions we're saying, we're using the terms nature, outdoors, outside, maybe even the wild, as if they're interchangeable. And sometimes they, they, they are or they overlap while trying to understand, you know, like I said, what do they mean for different people and what are the narrative constructs we've had around them, right? How has nature been defined versus the outdoors versus, versus outside versus just relationship to land? And how, how have people been defined relative to the, to, to the outdoors, relative exactly. to being beasts, relative to all of that? Exactly, and so that's the last piece I wanted to add about, quote unquote, the outdoors and its space in nature um, still exists within this larger space of all the issues that, that, that different communities are experiencing, right? So you're talking about having nature be a respite from the duress or the challenges or, you know, the trauma that you're dealing back at home, and you don't want to repeat those in nature in the outdoors. So what do we do to provide, to remind and reconnect and provide those as places of healing, not to re-traumatize people, while also acknowledging that people are coming to this with a different lived experience that you've had. So you get so excited about, say, let's go climb this peak and you're gonna like love it, or if only you could have a backpacking experience like I've had it, um, without remembering that they've had to deal with uh, different stresses in their life, much different than you. And if you don't open up to that awareness of what the difference of that lived experience is, um, to be careful about to not cause more um, harm. Right, and we also have to frame what counts as recreation because for the most part, when you think of an outdoor, when you say to someone, I'm, I'm going into the outdoors for the weekend, it tends to skew more rugged. It's very rarely, I'm going to grill in the park for, with my family or I'm going 
to fish on a river. Um, what do you think might help kind of broaden that, that frame so that it doesn't seem quite so extreme? Um, because I also think that that turns people off. Um, many, it, it, I know that particularly among my social circle, um, people within my social circle, when I say I'm, I'm going hiking, they think that I'm, I'm about to climb Kilimanjaro, you know, when, I, when, I, when really it's, it's, a, it's a very nicely graded path, it's up a few hundred feet, you know, that they, they, they could easily do. Um, I, I guess another question that I have is one of, one of access, and not just physical access, but, but mental barriers that might exist as well. Um, a couple, well, 2000, yeah, a couple years ago, one of the things that we did at REI is, because as you know, as an organization, we're limited with resources and capacity, and we said, you know, we have to reshift our strategy to really engage multicultural millennials. And instead of doing segment marketing, why don't we embed some of these insights so that it could be inform our much broader communication piece? And we, we, we went on a year research project to learn the commonalities of millennials and multicultural millennials. And the things that we found were the commonalities, like those human elements of why they're going outside. And the number one thing, which is not surprising if you've been in this space, is about having fun. You wanna be out there, you wanna be with your friends. So that social piece is also crucial. So you, it, it needs to be fun, it needs to be social and it's about the experience. So it's not so much about going to Kilimanjaro, making it to the summit, and getting that as your, your medal of honor, but it's about the journey, and the journey begins from the decision of you saying, I'm gonna do this, and it could be the training, and maybe you just make it to base camp, and that is the experience that you want to achieve. The, of course, those experiences become the social currency, which we now see on social media. And then, the other piece is just this space of being who you are and being accepted um, by folks around you, and that's by the community that surrounds you, by people who are also at the park. Um, so those are the pieces that to us is helping us redefine and really telling our story a little bit different of how people are connected to nature. And it's not about the product, but it really is about that experience. And how do you make that relatable to folks? so that people can have a connection to nature, because if they don't have a connection to nature, then it has all these effects, right, that we don't want to go that way. Yeah. You want to add to that, either of you? I do. Yeah, okay, okay, it looks like both of you do. We all have a lot to say. Right. Well, I was just thinking back to our conversation before we came out about the history of camping in the United States, and uh, you know, there's this narrative out there that you know, certain people don't do X, Y, and Z. People, uh, people of color don't hike, camp, fish, whatever the case is. And I've uncovered some, uh, some really uh, fascinating history that shows that, uh, for example, African Americans have been camping in the national parks going back to the turn of the century. And um, that's something that has not been written a lot about. We, have, we don't know much about that history. And I know that um, you've hiked the Appalachian Trail and you've been to Shenandoah and you, I want to hear more about your stories uh, about that <laughs> a little later. Um, but I think if, if we knew more about that history, um, I think that would, do, that would go a long way to, especially for, for millennials and younger, uh, to know that they do have a history in these spaces. They were a part of this as recreationists uh, and not as laborers, uh, not as um, servants, but they were actually recreationists in these spaces at a time when most people would think that can't be, but it certainly was. Um, I, just, I just think that would be an important part of any type of educational effort um, and would kind of change that image that people would say, well, you know, what are you going to do out there? Well, this is something we've always done. Yeah. Uh, Jose? I guess go back to the question of been outside, right? So. The two thoughts that have come from, from what we're talking about, yes, hashtag been outside. <laughs> Rahawa knows, look it up. Uh, so, you know, to, to appropriate an old line, you know, maps, uh, lines on a map have consequences. And I've often used that in this space to one, speak about like literal lines on a map. It's like, what are contour lines? What are the trail maps? Like all, all those lines are there for a reason. And if you're not informed of what they say, you can have a very good outdoor experience or a much more challenging outdoor experience, right? <laughs> Why can't we just go from here to here like that? 
It's easy. And then you, you see that. A little climbing under right? too. Yeah, oh yeah. Why are these all squiggly lines together? Uh, but then, and, and then also though, the, <laughs> the lines about what gets defined as a protected space, right, as nature. What is truly wild in the US in sense of like, what was defined back then, you just kind of go up and set up a cabin and you're good to go, right? You don't. Those are quote unquote public lands now. Uh, and those public lands came out of not, you know, open spaces. We call them open spaces, but there were people there. There was experiences in history there. But I say this because then what gets defined is, all, all, that's what the, when we're talking about politics, but also just policy. It's the decision making about what was decided to be protected. And that's not fixed. We can say it's a line on map, therefore it's done, but it's not, right? Um, the Land and Water Conservation Fund. Is like, right? Yeah. <laughs> like, if you don't know about what that is, it directly impacts your ability to enjoy nature here in the city as well as over in the San Gabriels, as well as in, the, uh, in Alaska, right? Those are people public policy decisions, uh, and they matter. And so, like, that's something that where we talk about what are communities of color, how they invested in that political fight, as an example. And then the other piece is the narrative component to be able to know that, you know, one clear example, how many of you know about the Juan Bautista de Anza National Historic Trail? How many of you? A few hands, right? I mean, it comes through here, through California and Arizona, all the way up to San Francisco. And this is a group of families, you know, black, uh, black and brown families, Latino, you know, Latinx, Afro, Latinx families, in 1776, coming up from northern Mexico into California. 1776, right? Um, because that presents a different migration and movement of people than what you're used to hearing about east to west. And you have to remember what's happening from south to north and then in other directions, and what's happening in the center, and what that means for the political realities of today about, quote unquote, nature in the outdoors, and how you can have a Tejano identity, an Hispano identity um, in the Southwest, but you no longer have a California identity, because ironically, why? Because of migration, of um, the gold rush that wiped out a lot of that a community here. And I mention that because to me I always like to combine that to the idea of narrative and storytelling and what's, what is relatively new and also what the research you know, says about what we value and why we value it because then that impacts what's going to happen for the next 10, 20, 50, 100 years. We just celebrated the uh, Find Your Park, right? Encuentra tu parque, the National Park Service Centennial. And that was the question. So what is this going to look like in 100 years from now? Well, I'm done. I, I, <laughs> I mean, it's, um, well, I guess with an eye toward the future, let's talk about climate change, right? And let's talk about how important it is for everyone, whether they're a person of color or not, to forge a, a strong, to see themselves as of the natural wor world, uh, to have forged that relationship with the natural world. Um, what? Can we, right now, I know I already said this, but like, it isn't just bringing a bunch of people of color to the outdoors and saying, okay, experience the outdoors and care, right? How can we embed that storytelling? Or how can we make um, discovering that history um, and caring and thinking about experiencing the outdoors in those terms the default? We have 10 years, right? Yeah, we got like six, yeah. Like <laughs> IPCC report, that's what it says, 10 years. <laughs> 12, right? <laughs> Well, one of the things that we've seen is the, just the general disconnection of all people to nature. And um, one, of the, one of the things that I was reading recently is that 95% of our time is spent indoors. And I mean, we're in LA, major city traffic is a nightmare, right? So we're driving to our destination, we get to work, we're there for eight hours, um, we get in a car, we go home, or we go to school, we're, we're, we're indoors right now. So what does that do? That's disconnecting us from nature. So what we need to do is, one, be aware of that, because 
if we don't have a connection to nature, that means that we won't have an appreciation with nature. And then if we don't have an appreciation to nature, we don't, we're not enjoying it, and then we're not, we're not taking actions that are protecting the environment. So I think it begins, one, being aware, and then two, how do we raise these opportunities so that people can connect to the outdoors, whether it is here in this beautiful park that is just a walking distance from us, to being more intentional and saying, you know what, I'm gonna go actually for the weekend and, and go camping. So I think there's an opportunity to do both and I think people, depending on their situation, can do that negotiation to see how am I gonna prioritize this because I know it has not just an effect for me personally, health-wise, but it also is an effect for the next generation. I wanna introduce um, another step in there um, that relates to, that goes beyond just visiting a park or visiting a space and um, having just kind of a positive feeling about it. Um, as I mentioned earlier, that we are looking at, you know, how to grow uh, philanthropists. You know, how do we get people to give both time and money to protecting um, natural spaces, not just natural spaces, but natural and cultural spaces, particularly the national parks. Um, that's another level. I mean, if we move from just visiting a, a park to actually spending time there volunteering to begin to give um, out of your finances to support uh, different things, and as well as voting um, as in the policy space. I don't have the specific answer as to how we move in that direction, but I think it's necessary for that long-term engagement, for that long-term connection, that we look beyond just the, we talked also about one-off experiences, that we move toward a more systematic and more progression, more of a progression in how we move people through, into and through these experiences. So uh, for those of you that have read the work of uh, Richard Rue, right, and, um, Last Chow in the Woods and, and, and his series of books. And there, you know, there he used the term nature deficit disorder. And it's been used a lot about this idea of our lack of experiences in nature as we increasingly live in a digital world and in kind of modern society and like, what were your childhood positive transformative experiences? Um, part of the question there in that movement, we were also asking like, well, what, what is that childhood? Is that a middle-class America type of childhood? Is that, how does that compare to like a, um, a black or brown kid, for example, right? And how do we integrate that? And his vision for the future is about these nature-rich cities, right? If we are gonna be in these urban societies, like how do we make sure that nature is, is a key component of that? I mean, LA, geez, what LA has been doing for the past 20 years has been pretty amazing and astounding. Uh, even just the opening of LA Historic uh, Park here downtown, you know, the cornfield. Uh, as, and to know that <laughs> it takes a lot of work. It's this bottom-up, top-down, but middle-out component. Uh, and to try to bring that value of voice to everybody, right? It isn't because with your Eurocentric degree, you have more value to add to this space that someone that grew up by that creek or that grew up by the LA River and you might get displaced because of, of green gentrification, right? And you're like, whoa, do I really want green spaces in my neighborhood then? Because <laughs> <laughs> then green for who, right? Uh, so I mentioned that because when we often talk about a vision of the future that's gonna be more multi-ambicultural, gender fluid, you know, um, non-binary, all these pieces of what we envision uh, is this kind of the strength of diversity. And we value diversity in the natural world, right? Few people say that's a beautiful monoculture of a forest. <laughs> Unless you intend to cut it down, right? <laughs> And so to transfer that to our human systems, to be able to know like the strength and value that comes from everybody pouring in their voice, but making sure there's a system in place that values that, right? We can say that the public, the public comment process is there for everybody because of this new rule about what's gonna happen with the Bureau of Land Management plan or for fish and wildlife, but you know it's only gonna have access to a few people. And then what happens to those who don't have a voice? So I wanna close with that because I think that component of 
you mentioned individual action, but then there's institutional action, and then there's kind of like cultural movement action at large, is that everybody has a role, and it doesn't just happen in one piece. The story of, of California State Parks, I think, is one key example of what's been accomplished from the past even just six years, going from a system in crisis to like, we're literally closing parks. Like, we're literally increasing the gap of access for some people. To that now, was before me joining yeah. the commission. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> and then me then came on, it's like, boom, fixed. More parks. So we need more women of color everywhere. I'm joking, but I'm not. <laughs> yeah, you're not, you're not joking. Um, to now actually having decisions around what do we do with these millions of dollars about how do we provide in more access, public funding, more access for parks. So here's a key moment in which we get to define that because these decisions are gonna affect what today's kids and their kids are gonna have for the next uh, 50 years. And knowing we also have this 10 to 12 year window to deal with climate change because that's the big thing that covers everything. I agree. And I, I also want to ask about, you've talked about cultural movements. Now, we are online and we are deeply embedded um, in these developments and in these movements. But how can we get uh, that landscape, the cultural movement landscape, to have an effect on policy or for policy to listen to that cultural movement? Because there are so many organizations now, like Latino Outdoors, like Outdoor Asian, Outdoor Afro, Queer Nature, and of course, Unlikely Hikers, who are doing the work. You know, much of it unpaid. This is a, a grassroots and a labor of love. Um, and people are, are, are finding, finding them and, and feeling less alone. And I would like to know, I guess that's not just on you as a founder of Latino Outdoors, but how can we mobilize? Like, what, what do we do to, to, to bring about this, this policy change? Sure, I'll start with five and then I'll turn it over to you. Uh, <laughs> One is, if you are able, and I say able because different people are not able for different reasons, and I don't think that should be a, something to question right now, but if you are able to register and vote, vote, okay? I don't, just vote. Your vote does not just impact you, it impacts a lot of other people around you, or your lack of not voting as well, right? Second is, um, sometimes thinking, how am I gonna influence like a bunch of other people anywhere, everywhere? You have an immediate sphere of influence. I mean, social media just amplifies that. You can be surprised at how many people do pay attention to what you do say uh, and don't say. Uh, so think about how when we leverage that, because all it takes is your group of five people to be able to change and shift that. It literally is. I've had to learn that for myself, to be honest. Right? Who actually pays attention to me? There's actually a few people that do, so. <laughs> Three is, um, is this ability for, we were talking about this earlier, how can we speak in support for the voices that are not here, right? There's a piece of my identity, so speaking of intersectionality, there's a piece of my identity that's indigenous, but I also uh, don't lead in that space like others do that I wanna be able to sober and respect more. Right? just in the way that they want to be able to support the Latinx identity experience and when we get into um, other um, marginalized identities. So I, I say that as a point to how do you put yourself in a learning space to do that. So one easy example for me is how do I put myself in a space for, um, for um, learning in the gender space. I, don't, I have a lack of power and privileges of spaces, but also because I'm a hetero cisgender male, I have a lot of power and privileges of spaces. So how do I use that as a way to be, say, what power am I willing to give up? And that's why I said I wasn't joking about women of color. I mean, that <laughs> brings such a leadership into a space that's needed because it hasn't been there. And then the last one is um, the cultural change. Culture is about what's comfortable, right? It's about um, what's comfortable and familiar at its basic. Well, we're in a culture that affirms us, it's we feel good. Things are familiar, we like it sights, norms, behaviors, greetings. When we're a culture that doesn't support us, we feel alienated, like, oh, that's strange, or that's unfamiliar, I'm not sure. So those little cultural changes for me start with those behaviors and actions that expand on that, and honestly, as we, get in, we have a lot more youth that are quote-unquote digital natives, um, it's what's cool. We were joking, I, I hope, no offense, but if Taylor Swift 
Flips, Tennessee. Like, that means something. If you don't know what I'm talking about, then look it up. So I want to say that in terms of like that social capital that Miriam's talking about. It's accrued in different spaces. And in this age right now, it can move pretty quickly. That's what things are about being viral. That's what it's about you, um, especially on Instagram, calling out outdoor companies that's like, hey, that's not right, messaging them and seeing that action actually comes about sometimes pretty quickly. So I'll pause there. Please. Great. Yeah, and, and the last point that you had was something that I had also in my notes. And, and it is about over the last couple of years, we've seen more people step up to say, um, stand up for issues that they, they don't think are the right direction or the right way that we should be going. Um, and this is the opportunity for us to also take that and say, let's invite people to the outdoors, let's make it more open, let's make it more welcoming. But also, if an organization is not, going, is not doing something or is what you in your eyes thinks is the opposite of what it's supposed to be doing, now is the time to be heard. I, I say that wearing both my, my commissioner hat as a volunteer for California State Parks, but also as a person at, at, that works at REI. I often get calls from members. Sometimes they're happy, sometimes they're not, but I listen to them, and sometimes they do have great points that I have not seen because I am in this bubble, right? Um, but then there's also on the volunteer side for California State Parks, these are public dollars. Really, our public meetings are fun, so you should join us and take those three minutes for public comment because we are listening. And a lot of times, that's where major decisions about parks are being made. And if people are not there to voice their concerns, then there's going to be a group of volunteers who represent different parts of California taking action in a beautiful place in California that we're not familiar with. Though we try to be fair and, and do our research, it is, it's really when it comes to listening to public input, that's how we're able to make better informed decisions. And then the other one, extending, just stretching out your arm and inviting people, whether it is bringing them to the conversation or inviting them to an outdoor experience, bring others along and share those stories so that it doesn't become a rarity, but it's just the norm. I'm gonna speak from an academic perspective and as a professor. Please. So thinking about students uh, who find their way into natural resource management or park management, um, I think it's important that they understand the history of, I'm just gonna say public lands management in this country and how those lines were drawn, boundaries, how parks and other areas were created. Um, I think that would go a long way in how they engage in their professional life and what they do um, on the job in terms of if they are helping to change agencies uh, from the inside. Another point I'd like to make concerns the research culture and how we ask questions as a researcher. I said earlier, um, it's important that we look at institutions, not just people who we say are somehow deficient if they're not visiting a park or a nature space or uh, some other public land. We have to ask better questions. We have to ask hard questions. We have to ask questions that you mentioned earlier that may not be comfortable to ask, um, but we need to understand the history of of how public lands were created and how people's experiences have been, um, how they've not been recognized. And I do know that agencies rely on social science research in some way or other. And it's important that we increase. Uh, I mentioned earlier that we have hundreds and hundreds of studies on the motivations for why people engage in outdoor recreation. But most of those samples are mostly white. Um, and in many cases, male, they're men. And so what we have in our literature is that we don't have enough in our literature that really tells us definitively the kinds of outdoor recreation experiences that a diverse um, society demands. And then how can we manage for something and provide something that we don't know, um, you know what it is? Quick, quick, Real quickly, because I promise I'm treatable. Quickly, okay. you, you vote with your ballot, you vote with your money, you vote with your time, you vote with your voice, you vote with your choice. Okay, so there. Okay, thank you. And thank the panelists so much. Bianca has the first question on the left. Hi, my name is Ilaria Mazzolini. Thank you for your talk. 
uh, I found it extremely interesting and I think what is uh, an additional piece perhaps is the fact that we are in a National History Museum, Natural History Museum and the ecological component. I think our question goes beyond the humans. Uh, we are still very human-centric in what we are questioning and in doing so then we propose we, the experience of going to a park is not the, the human experience, it's how do we learn about parks and science and the ecosystem in which we are part and therefore we become respectful of the environment. And I think it starts from the individuals and so I would like to call for an action question, an individual question. We for, I, for example, started a non-profit in Italy in nature to discuss these conversations. What is your individual question that you want to share with us? Try it real quickly again. So I understood the question to be, what is an individual action that you take to inspire others, in really in relation to nature? Uh, what, I mean, go out, right? Go out onto a trail to some natural environment. Uh, and, but what I add to that is that reminder, how do we get back to that original connection or reconnection to how we are part of nature? I think that's fair what you're saying about this idea of a separation, it's humans and nature or nature versus how humans are part of nature and that reconnection. And that's often what I say about indigenizing a space is getting us as to how we are a component of, of those human relations. Um, because even, you know, like, right, who gets to speak for, for P22, right? Yeah. Does he get to go cast his vote uh, in that way? Uh, but with the, that's why the decisions we make impact that. So everything from literally the protection, but even legal standing, right? Like that's been a battle about how does nature have legal standing in a court of law, for example. So that's how. So I do that by literally going out. Next question is on your right. Hello, I'm Daniel Garcia. I am a public school teacher here in Los Angeles in South Central. Uh, ethnic studies. <laughs> And my question for you is how I could be the connection to my students, because I necessarily don't want to have to take them, because they see enough of me, um, <laughs> to nature. Um, so if you know of any organizations, because I know so many times it's just the fact of just knowing, right? Knowing of the organizations that are out there, connecting our students to the organizations that are already out there, um, to them. One of the things that we have at California State Parks is the, the technology. Oh my gosh, ports. I can't remember that. The ports program. Um, that takes technology into the, the school program, into the schools, and, and does an entire curriculum around state parks. But it's not just about the technology because they are able to bring a 360, and once that experience is in the classroom, the students then go to that actual park. So that's one piece. But the other one are like the basic moments of why does a lesson have to be inside? Can you take it outdoors? Um, and mo instilling those little moments that maybe for some might, 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 might seem as insignificant, those are instilling those values of kids, of them just enjoying and appreciating nature and noticing that they might be acting a little bit different and it might be better in that breathing fresh air is a result um, of that positive impact. And this burden shouldn't solely be on you, right? It has to be comprehensive with other teachers within the school and within the school system. Um, otherwise, I think that's a heavy load to bear. Yeah. And ask around this audience, there's like literally two people sitting right next to you right there that I know they do. <laughs> I am, I'm Dave Smith from Joshua Tree, and teacher, I'll talk to you later. I've got plenty yeah. of ideas yeah. we can connect with. So my question's for Dr. Floyd. Uh, for a long time, the, the different agencies have thought that economics are something that's preventing uh, a lot of our visitors, especially our non-represented visitors from coming into the parks. So we've gone for bus grants, we've gone for fee-free days to bring people into parks. We've got it, you know, as creative as possible to lower the economic barriers. At the end of the Obama administration, we had to raise park prices. Secretary Zinke has encouraged us to raise them as well. What, what does your research show about economics and that as being a barrier from keeping people going into national park sites? That is certainly a barrier for lower income um, households. And um, it obviously it, um, it's a barrier in terms of, particularly in areas that are more distant, more remote places. Um, but at the same time, um, there is uh, kind of a wide and and still growing middle class 
among communities of color where income or economic barriers are not as great. And people are doing things um, and have maybe different priorities and choosing other types of experiences. And they could be outdoor experiences, but they are just other types of leisure experiences. But for those uh, communities that are experiencing those economic barriers, um, I, I think that um, we, something we've talked about in terms of building interest uh, and building connections to outdoor spaces that are closer to home, um, that can then perhaps lead to other uh, types of experience that may be uh, more remote or more uh, or that are farther away. Um, but as far as kind of more generally underrepresented groups, um, for, for that particular segment, yes, income is a barrier. But for you know the broader middle class, um, that is not uh, a significant uh, a significant barrier. My name is Antoinette Cordero, and I am a um, environmental attorney and civil rights attorney, civil rights uh, and environmental justice. Um, I want to spend, I want to take a moment and acknowledge and give respect to the Tongva people whose land we are on, uh, a little belatedly to, to make that statement, but we need to do that, especially when we're talking about, um, about nature and honoring nature. Uh, I need to just take a little bit of an exception to something you said earlier, which is that neither the mission system nor the gold rush destroyed us. We are still here. And as, as a friend of mine says, my existence is my resistance. And my question is, following up actually on the issue that the gentleman just raised, we need to get more people, I, I think, yes, yes, there's a growing middle class of people of color, but people of color are still disproportionately um, economically disadvantaged. And growing up, we went camping every summer because it was the only summer vacation that my dad as a construction laborer could afford for a family of 11. We need to keep nature accessible. And we, more importantly, we need to have people in decision-making um, positions who are actually um, uh, bringing that, that consciousness to the decision-making process. So what is your recommendation for how we do that? Out of peace, and, and uh, exception noted. I appreciate you mentioning that. I didn't mean to imply that it was, that's a whole conversation that's always great to have about what gets historicized and dehistoricized. Uh, yes, I agree. So California is an interesting example in that, well, let me re make one example in the California example, so to speak. We have a group, we were talking about this, of, for example, Latinx uh, legislators, right, elected officials. Um, you had Anthony Rendon from here, Kevin Leon, had, um, Monique Limon, uh, Eduardo Garcia. And that first class kind of grew up in the resistance to Pete Wilson in the 90s, right? So they were like the young who was like, oh my God, we feel attacked in our communities. And ultimately they went into, into elected office. And when they came up in the leadership, part of the thing was to don't take us as standard democratic elected officials that are just gonna care about the environment as we've cared before. We really wanna be, uh, and again, I'm gonna note this, there's always gonna be problematic spaces. Like, so don't take this to be see like, I'm saying it exactly as, as it is, because I know there's points of exceptions in, in all these things. But to be able to note to say like, hey, in our communities, these are the issues that are part of it, right? So that consciousness in one end comes from who we support into elected office, the other, point, the other point is in how do we make the time to be able to go to the commission meetings, to be able to go to uh, the Capitol and have those spaces and times and build those connections and relationships. That's something that I've been working on for the past few years to better understand that process and system and have those relationships to say, um, hey, <laughs> we come from a similar lived experience. Now we can have a conversation that sometimes we feel we couldn't have before. And, and I know this may be an anecdotal point, but this is why the research is, is important. You know, like for the longest time, like, do Latinos care about the environment? And I was like, well, do we, do we not? Where, where's the data that shows that? And over the past six years, oh, look, all the studies say they do. Wow, surprise, right? But that's the validation that that goes shows. Now we can use that to have a different conversation about the how, and then what, what's the gap in between then leadership. So I'll say that because then, 
I remember these experiences of going to Capitol uh, here and in DC and the different conversations we would have when I would be with part of a group of Latino um, advocates um, versus when I was the Latino in a group of conservation advocates when it would be no people of color Latinos in conservation advocates. And I remember the staff being, oh, yeah, you get it, right? And so it's like understanding how that begins to shift in those political spaces, because you're right, like that, that's actually where so much of the decision making happens. I hope that kind of answer, we can continue it at reception. Will, Next question. Oh, I'd just like to add, um, I often get the same question um, in, in the volunteer space as a commissioner, but also at REI. And one of the things that I remind folks is that at REI, there's people that are attorneys, there's accountants, there's HR specialists, there's different fields represented. And if you have that as a professional skill, then you have a job in the outdoor industry and you can actually have a representation, you can have a voice and you can influence. So that is another way that you can create change is by joining these organizations. My name is Bushra Malik. Um, and I, I guess my question is twofold, but I've noticed that when communities of color um, express their frustrations, um, especially being outdoors, that there's this like blatant refusal by so many folks to believe that it's like that their, their issues are justified. I've seen over and over again people saying like stop, like these, you know, stop playing the victim, you know, the like, you know, uh, stop bringing politics into this and this and that. I, like people, I guess people, honestly, the people that aren't of color that are just denying that this is a problem. I'm, so my first question is how do you guys respond to those types of people? I think it's like a larger issue we have today where everyone's like so divisive, like on one, one far extreme to, you know, the other. But I'm wondering if you guys have, like have like practical suggestions to having those conversations with people, especially outdoors, because I feel like that's still a different segment of the population. It's a different kind of person that you'll see outdoors. And my second question is, um, I think Jose, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this specifically. Um, for people that of color that you're bringing outdoors with you, how have you found um, to be the best way to get those people to enjoy the outdoors when they do get a really weird look? Or like there is like a very, you know, like you get a microaggression that's very felt, but it's not blatant. So I'm, I'm just wondering how you either prevent those things from happening or, you know, you mitigate those problems when they do happen. Because I've experienced that a ton myself. Going back to risk management training. <laughs> <laughs> so part of the outdoor experience is risk management. And, you know, AVRI has a really good risk management module. But I extend that to this question of risk management, not just in the physical risks that you'll encounter, but also these social emotional risks. Right? I try to like draw parallels from everything that we have as quote unquote standard practices in the outdoor space, like even leave no trace principles. What, was that, what would that look like in terms of their social emotional cultural impact as well? Right? How do we go out with those principles to like minimize impact on others? So I, I say that because then what I try to do is at least three things. One is the risk management is no, not, it's really hard, if not impossible, to actually create safe spaces. It's hard to guarantee that because you can't control what somebody else will experience or do. But we try to create as resilient, courageous spaces to be able to say when you encounter something like this, um, how do we process that and how do we provide support for each other and for ourselves? That's when we have these conversations around self-care, about building uh, supportive, resilient communities, how we will speak for each other. You know, it's a great example of our men mentioning um, recognizing indigenous presence because you don't have to be indigenous to be a voice and support to that. And in social media, a lot of accounts are doing that to provide that, right? And then the last component is after the fact, when you process that, I will use anything that I feel is applicable and relatable in that cultural space. I've heard everything from literally approaching with humor. It's like, well, you know, what I've learned for video games is that the more enemies you encounter, means you're going in the right direction, right? <laughs> uh, or in other words, you know, well, it's okay. They're just, it's a, it's a fear of resistance to change. And you can be a positive ancient to help that individual not worry about it. You just, you know, as I mentioned, just by you being here is powerful, that um, resistance through existence 
And so you're gonna expect resistance, but guess what? That's also how we get stronger. That's why you go to the gym to work out, right? Whoops. So, a I, I want to add to that really quickly. Um, she wanted first to things first. <laughs> what? First things first, no, I always stay safe, right? I mean, anytime I'm in a similar situation, I, I ask myself, is, am I safe here? And if, I'm, if, I, if I doubt that in any way, I don't necessarily engage um, critically. But also, I just, I, I just want to make it very clear that it is not your job to explain the systems of oppression that act upon you. It is, it, it just... It isn't. It is, it is not your job to explain why your lived reality is valid to anyone. Um, and if you choose not to do so, that's fine. If somebody sincerely asks you, hey, what's this like for you? And, and genuinely wants to engage, and if you have the energy or desire to tell them, then that's wonderful. But not necessary, and definitely not obligatory. And it is perfectly fine to not spend your precious energy on them. Yes. Thank you. Uh, my name is David Koga. I'm an environmental writer and um, communicator at UCLA. And uh, I guess because it was brought up how important sort of storytelling and narratives are to this uh, ongoing situation posed by this event, um, I was wondering if anybody has an individual story that sort of illustrates or encapsulates that for themselves that they'd be willing to share. And you said we're out of time. <laughs> wow. I'll say one, I'll keep it one phrase, then we can talk about it. Like, I really love the, a life outdoors is a life well lived. And then I get a right yeah. to say this, but it just should be said to me, with tacos. With tacos. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good one. <laughs> um, no more bites? Mine's too long. All right, well, you'll have to corner them at the reception for those stories, all right? <laughs> so before we close, I'd like to thank our co-presenter tonight, the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County. A big round of applause for them, please. Thank all of you for joining us. We're so thrilled to see such a big crowd here for this really important conversation, and the night's not over yet. Please stick around for the post-event reception just outside in the lobby by the dinosaurs. What a great place to have a drink, right? And finally, a big final round of applause for our fantastic panelists. Thank you so much.